You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 103, The Battle of Brooklyn. When we last left New York, General Howe commanded a combined force of about 32,000 British and Hessian soldiers on Staten Island, supported by his brother Admiral Howe with over 10,000 sailors and Marines on over 400 ships. The regulars had had time to recover from their sea voyages and were in top condition after living on Staten Island for weeks with plenty of fresh food and exercise. Opposing them, General Washington had less than 10,000 Continental soldiers and perhaps another 10,000 or so militia that might be available. Even most of the Continental soldiers had no combat experience nor even much drilling for combat. Most of the veterans of Concord and Bunker Hill had left the army at the end of 1775, replaced by new recruits. As at Boston, disease continued to ravage the army, with smallpox, dysentery, and other diseases filling military hospital camps with nearly 6,000 soldiers unfit for duty. Among the sick was General Nathaniel Green, who had been in command of the Long Island defenses until he fell ill. In his place, Washington gave command to General John Sullivan, just back from losing Canada. Washington's army had spent the past six months improving their defenses and anticipating possible enemy attacks. Washington was not sure if the British would make a direct assault on New York City or attack Long Island or northern New Jersey and then commit Washington from one of the sides. The British fleet might also just sail up the Hudson, land behind Washington's forces, and cut him off from retreat. As a result, Washington spread his army all over the region to be ready for all these different possibilities. On the night of August 21, 1776, a brutal thunderstorm struck the region. Witnesses reported a torrential downpour lasting over three hours with nearly continuous lightning strikes. Along the East River, a single strike killed ten soldiers and camped along the bank. In town, another strike killed three officers. Dozens of homes caught fire and burned during the storm. Many saw the violent storm as an omen of terrible things to come. The next morning, the skies were clear and all had returned to normal. British warships deployed along the coast of Long Island to cover the troop transports soon to follow. The first group of 4,000 soldiers under Generals Clinton and Cornwallis crossed from Staten Island to Long Island along Gravesend Bay just south of where the Verrazano Narrows Bridge now stands. The handful of Pennsylvania riflemen assigned to the area fled without engaging the enemy, driving off the cattle to deny them to the enemy. The well-planned landing went off flawlessly. 
By noon, the British had landed 15,000 men, with another 5,000 still on the way. Rather than attacking immediately, the British set up camp and began to establish defenses. Again, they were in no hurry. Back in New York, General Washington received reports that about 8,000 British had landed at Long Island. Concerned that this was still a feint, Washington kept the bulk of his forces in the city prepared for a frontal assault. He deployed only around 1,500 reinforcements across the East River to Brooklyn, bringing the total number of defenders on Long Island to a little under 6,000. Washington also appeared to be unhappy with General Sullivan's leadership and the lack of order and discipline among the soldiers on Long Island. On August 24th, two days after the regulars had landed, Washington sent General Israel Putnam as field commander over Sullivan on Long Island. For reasons I have never completely understood, the British Navy did not bother to move up the East River. If they had, they would have prevented Washington from deploying reinforcements and also cutting off the most obvious line of retreat for the forces on Long Island. It could be that Admiral Howe feared damage from the shore batteries. For several days, the winds blew unfavorably for moving upriver. Trying to run past the batteries against the wind might have been too great a danger for his fleet. It could also be that the Howes did not want to cut off the lines of retreat. That is why they also rejected General Henry Clinton's plan to land forces up the Hudson River north of the city and cut off the Continental Army from any retreat. Leaving open a line of retreat would reduce the will of the enemy to stand and fight. If they took New York easily, perhaps the rebels would be more inclined to consider a negotiated peace. Whatever the reason, the British took no action in the Hudson or East Rivers. They landed their army on Long Island and set up camp. Local Tories flocked to the army, greeting them as liberators. Although the Patriots had made some efforts to destroy crops and drive off livestock, there was still plenty for the regulars to enjoy. The regulars and Hessians also saw how well the colonists were living. The standard of living in New York was far higher than that of most commoners in England or the German states where the soldiers had grown up. Many officers confirmed their views that the colonists were a bunch of whiners that did not realize how good they had it. It made them all the more eager to crush this rebellion and perhaps be rewarded with lands of their own in this prosperous countryside. For several days, the British Army camped on Long Island in no particular hurry to do anything. This gave Washington plenty of time to assess the numbers he faced and to send over additional reinforcements. Even so, he had a total of between 9,000 and 10,000 soldiers to face over 20,000 attackers supported by Navy cannon. The Continentals concentrated the bulk of their forces around the forts they had built in Brooklyn. They deployed only around 3,000 inexperienced soldiers to defend the Gowanus Heights, the hilly defenses stretching along nearly six miles. The Continentals had no cavalry to keep an eye on enemy deployments and not much in the way of civilian spies willing to help them. Washington still kept his best generals in New York, still fearing a direct assault on the city. General Putnam controlled Long Island from Brooklyn. On the front lines, he relied on General Sullivan, who had never impressed him, and General William Alexander, also known as Lord Sterling, who had just joined the Continental Army. 
the Continentals seemed to hope that the British and Hessians would make a frontal assault on their entrenched lines. Even if they did overwhelm the American lines with superior numbers, Washington hoped they could be bloodied in the assault, just as they had suffered at Bunker Hill the year before. In the British camp, Washington's hope seemed to be a realistic one. General Howe expressed support for a direct assault on the Continental lines, overwhelming the enemy and pushing them back along the East River. His second-in-command, General Clinton, though, had other ideas. Clinton had actually grown up on Long Island when his father was governor of the colony. He probably knew the terrain better than any general on either side. In evaluating the land and speaking with the locals, Clinton discovered that the Continentals had placed defenses at the three main passes through the Gowanus Heights. But for some reason, they had left a fourth pass, known as the Jamaica Pass, unprotected. Perhaps because they thought it was too far to the east and that no one would bother to go that far around. Clinton decided it was the perfect place to move his army and then roll up the Gowanus Heights defenders from behind in a flanking maneuver. Now, Clinton was always proposing such flanking maneuvers, and Howe was always rejecting them. He had rejected such a plan at Bunker Hill, and also a similar plan to attack New York City from behind. Howe also rejected Clinton's plan for Long Island. Based on past experience, Clinton knew that arguing with Howe directly was pointless. The two men had come to loathe one another, and Clinton's reputation had taken a big hit after his failure to accomplish anything during his brief independent command against the Carolinas. Instead of arguing the point with Howe directly, Clinton sent several of his respected junior officers to plead with Howe to give more consideration to the plan. Perhaps out of fear of another Bunker Hill, Howe relented and gave Clinton permission to take his army out to the Jamaica Pass and run his flanking maneuver. On the evening of August 26th, Clinton led 10,000 soldiers, about half of the British force on Long Island, on a six-mile march to the Jamaica Pass. To keep the march a secret, they took prisoner anyone they met along the way. Unlike Massachusetts, Long Island did not have any Patriot riders ready to alert anyone to the night march. When they arrived at the Jamaica Pass, five Continental officers on horseback approached them, thinking they were Continental forces the British captured them without firing a shot. Under interrogation, they learned that these five men were the only soldiers deployed to cover the pass. By dawn, Clinton had led his army through the pass and had crossed the Gowanus Heights without encountering any enemy fire. On the morning of August 27th, General Howe deployed his remaining forces on a direct march against the rebel forces at Brooklyn. The army moved slowly, with its lines in place by dawn. British artillery opened fire. British regulars and Hessians marched forward to test the Continental lines on the heights. Lord Stirling commanded the Continentals defending the heights. Among his soldiers were the famed Smallwoods Maryland Regiment and Hazlitt's Delaware Regiment. These were two of the Continental Army's best equipped and trained regiments. In both of their cases, though, their regimental commanders were missing, having been called to New York for court-martial duty. Even without their commanding officers, the regiments fought with distinction, along with others from Connecticut and Pennsylvania. 1,600 Continental soldiers held back the advancing British and Hessians for hours. 
General Sullivan also arrived at the battlefield with additional reinforcements. For much of the morning, the British would approach within about 200 yards, but then pull back in the face of enemy fire. The Continental officers were impressed with the ability of their army to stand toe-to-toe with the enemy in open field. Then, around 9 a.m., General Howe fired a special signal gun, at which point Clinton's forces, which had taken all the Gowanus Heights defenders from behind, now descended on the main Continental forces at Brooklyn. Sullivan and Sterling now faced not only 10,000 enemy in front of them, but another 10,000 attacking them from behind. They eventually realized the British and Hessians in their front were not attempting to overwhelm them, but had simply been distracting them while Clinton's army came around behind them. The Americans defended themselves admirably in the face of an overwhelming assault. Some soldiers covered the retreat of others, who had nowhere to go but into the Gowanus Swamp. Some drowned, but many eventually made their way back to the Continental Forts at Brooklyn. The Maryland Regiment, under the command of Sterling, continued to hold off the enemy, giving the other Continentals time to withdraw, but they were soon overwhelmed. The attacking British soldiers attacked without mercy, bayoneting soldiers who tried to surrender. The British did take hundreds of prisoners, including Generals Sullivan, Sterling, and Nathaniel Woodhull. Sterling refused to surrender his sword. Instead, he fought his way through the British lines to hand his sword to the Hessian General von Heister. I had not mentioned General Woodhull until now. He was a militia general, not part of the Continental Army. After his capture, a British officer slashed him on the head and arm with a sword for refusing to say, God save the king. The wounds led to an infection, which killed him about two weeks later. Washington crossed the East River from Manhattan to Brooklyn around 10 a.m. so that he could work with General Putnam to restore order. And just by way of explanation, although the term Manhattan was not commonly used at the time, they called it New York or York City, I'm using the term Manhattan just so we don't confuse it with the other boroughs that are part of modern-day New York City. By 10 a.m., Washington and Putnam watched hundreds of fleeing soldiers straggling into their lines. At the same time, the British Navy attempted to move up the East River, thus cutting off more reinforcements from New York, and also the only line of retreat against the advancing British Army. Then, around noon, with the British Army in control of the field of battle, General Howe called a halt to the advance. Many of the officers and men, wanting to push forward and deliver the final death blow to the Continental Army, grew frustrated with the orders to stop pursuing the fleeing rebels. Again, it's hard to guess Howe's true motives, but the best argument is that he did not want to run uncontrolled into a concentrated and embedded enemy that could end up driving back the British or inflicting terrible casualties on the British as they overran the forts. Despite ending early, the British had won the day by any measure. They held the field that they had planned to take with only about 400 casualties. By comparison, the Patriots had taken about 1,100 casualties and an equal number taken prisoner. The next morning, August 28th, Washington found the remainder of his army facing the British lines with his back against the East River. He brought over another 1,200 reinforcements from New York but even with reinforcements, he only had about 9,000 soldiers 
facing about 15,000 of the enemy, with another 5,000 in reserve. The British began digging a series of trenches, slowly moving toward the Patriot lines. This was the traditional slow and safe way to take an enemy fort with a minimum of casualties. With numbers on their side, the British would almost certainly move close enough to blast the fort walls with their cannon and then take the forts if the Patriots still refused to surrender. Later in the day, though, the weather changed. Another downpour soaked both sides. When they attempted to continue their fire at one another, with increased frustration at their waterlogged weapons. The British continued to advance their trenches, slowly pushing toward the Patriot position for a final assault. The following day, August 29th, seemed like the continuing bad weather was the only thing holding back the final British assault. If Howe managed to capture Washington's 9,000-man army, that likely would have been the end of the war. The remaining troops in New York almost certainly would have fled and scattered. Washington held a council of war with his senior officers. They agreed that they needed to retreat across the river to New York before the winds changed and the British Navy moved up the East River. General Thomas Mifflin proposed the retreat, but also volunteered his Pennsylvania regiment to serve as the rear guard, meaning they would cover the retreat and would be the last to leave Long Island. The problem now was getting an army of 9,000 across the river without the British noticing. Washington's best bet would have been to have his men rush over the Brooklyn Bridge back to Manhattan. The major flaw with that plan was that the bridge would not be built for another century and they could not wait that long. Rowing an army across the river in small boats in the face of the enemy would be nearly impossible. Even if the Navy could not move up the East River yet, Howe's army could easily overrun the Continentals as they waded along the riverbank. The Americans decided to move the men in secret that night, getting as many over as possible before the British discovered what they were doing. Colonel John Glover's Marblehead Regiment, all experienced mariners, gathered all the boats they could find. Washington issued orders that the men should be ready to move that evening for a night attack on the enemy. Many soldiers thought it was crazy to mount a night attack and were greatly relieved when they found out it was a ruse to keep secret the fact that they were being marched down to the river to retreat to New York City. As soon as the sun went down, Glover's regiment began ferrying the army across the river, starting with the wounded and least experienced fighters. Others kept campfires burning and made as much noise as possible so that the British would think the whole army remained in camp. The wind and rain, though, made the mile-wide river crossing impossible. The crews informed Washington that they could not make the retreat. Then, around 11 p.m., the wind suddenly died down and they began transporting the troops back to New York. Everyone worked in silence, the biggest fear being that the British would discover the retreat and launch an attack on the remaining forces. General Mifflin, still covering the front lines, heard the British digging trenches all night, always moving closer toward their lines. Finally, around 4 a.m., a major came to inform Mifflin that they were ready to evacuate his troops. Mifflin was shocked that Washington was able to get his army across the river that fast. He even questioned the major's orders. But the major was adamant that he had just been over all the continental lines and Mifflin's men were the last to go. Mifflin took his troops down to the river, 
only to find there were still thousands of soldiers waiting to cross. Washington rode up and told Mifflin that he had ruined everything. By abandoning the lines, the British would realize the retreat was afoot and would march in and capture all the soldiers still waiting to cross. Mifflin angrily responded that he was following orders that he was told were directly from Washington. They soon realized the Major had been mistaken in telling Mifflin to leave his post. Mifflin marched his regiment back to the front lines, fortunately without the enemy noticing its absence. When dawn came, much of the army remained in Brooklyn, still waiting to cross. At any moment, the British would discover the retreat and capture the remaining army, including Washington, who would not cross before the rest of his men did. As the sun rose, the army experienced yet another miracle of weather. A heavy fog set in, making it impossible for anyone to see more than a few feet in front of them. The retreat continued that morning under fog just as effectively as it did under cover of darkness. By early morning, Mifflin's final regiment pulled off the line and crossed into New York. Washington took one of the last boats across the river. Within an hour of the final crossing, the fog lifted and the British discovered the enemy had vanished. All 9,000 soldiers had escaped. Although Washington had lost the battle, his army lived to fight another day. Next week, the Americans build a submarine and attack the British Navy. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hi, thanks for joining another American Revolution podcast book recommendation. I want to thank Mike Hager for supporting the American Revolution podcast on Patreon at the Privy Council tier. Anyone can help support the show either by becoming an ongoing supporter on Patreon and getting special benefits or making a one-time donation to my PayPal account. Patreon members can get advance access to draft scripts for upcoming episodes, sometimes even advance access to the episodes themselves if I get them recorded in time. There are other benefits as well. Links to Patreon and PayPal appear on my website and my blog, so go to amrevpodcast.com for more details. This week we saw the British Army using its experience and numbers to put the Continentals to shame. General Howe had the good sense to take the advice of General Clinton and use an effective flanking maneuver to get around the American lines. Even so, Howe showed a hesitation to take advantage of his success to render the final death blow 
and capture or destroy the Continental Army. This gave George Washington the chance to pull off an amazing retreat. Once again, weather played a crucial role in his success. Southerly winds kept the Navy from cutting off retreat from the East River, and a fortuitous fog kept the final stage of his retreat from being discovered. Once again, just like at Dorchester Heights, an amazing luck of weather made all the difference. For anyone who believes in divine intervention, this might be an example of where they would raise such an argument. Whatever the reason, Howe's decision to pause gave Washington that chance to get away. Even after Washington's escape to Manhattan, Howe still had every opportunity to cross the river and finish the job. His failure to act for weeks seems crazy in hindsight, as it did to many in London. It would not be the last time that Howe would act with a level of caution bordering on malpractice for a military officer. Even so, the victory on Long Island was pretty complete, and Howe was ready to complete his occupation of New York at the time of his choosing. If you're interested in reading more about this battle for Brooklyn and Long Island, this week's book, The Battle of Brooklyn, 1776, by John J. Gallagher, provides those details. It's a relatively short book, only about 200 pages, but it focuses directly on the battle itself. The author, Gallagher, who served as a U.S. Army officer, takes a careful look at the strategy and tactics. It even has two appendices laying out the order of battle for both armies. I, I believe this is his only book. He died in 2002. The book also talks about the people and politics of 1776 and puts the battle in context for the time period. However, it does not get too distracted by issues unrelated to this specific time and place. So if you want a book that focuses on just this battle, this is your book. My online recommendation this week is the American Battlefield Trust, whose website is battlefields.org. The Trust is focused on the preservation of battlefields, primarily from the Revolution and Civil War. It has good summaries of the battles on its website, as well as some short descriptive videos. I found it to be informative and helpful for those good summaries of battles. You may also think that preservation of some of these battlefields is a worthy cause and want to learn more about it. Although I will say the battlefield of Brooklyn has pretty much long been lost to development. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story, its unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.